Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. We've got three hosts this week, so that means at least 22 opinions. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh11. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer out at askleo.com since 2003. Gary? I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacPost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials almost every day. And I'm also the chief engineer at clevermedia.com, where I make mobile games. Well, I think we had to go right back to what we were talking about last week, which was the Falcon Heavy test launch. We wondered if it would land in three pieces or several million pieces, and the answer was both. Yeah, somewhere in between is the way I was describing it to somebody. Yeah, so it was a very successful launch. It was very exciting to watch and awfully cool. Um, And they did land the two side boosters and that was incredible to see that they came down simultaneously and before that you could see the the cameras looking down toward the feet of the things and it looked like two copies of the same camera image but it wasn't i honestly honestly was wondering if they had mistakenly put the same video feed on both sides it was yeah and i was looking at that really carefully and saying no there are very very slight differences but that's how perfectly they were aligned in their trajectory and in their control that it looked like the camera from each one of those boosters uh, was just identical to the other one. And it was, they just had a perfect lineup. It was amazing to watch that amazing to see it land. Um, Somebody posted some video that they were, you know, several miles away on the ground and they saw them coming down and they, um, grabbed their phone and, and took some video of it. And it was fascinating how long it was between the time they landed and then the time you heard the sound, including the multiple sonic booms. Each one of them gives out three sonic booms, which is really kind of neat. And uh, But the, the middle core, the main rocket that they also want, wanted to land, but it was going to land on a barge out in the Atlantic, Ran out of fuel, which is kind of surprising, and uh, apparently hit the water right near the barge at about 300 miles an hour. Yeah, that'll, and, that'll put a dent in your day. Yeah, and uh, that's the, uh, the multiple pieces that uh, we were talking about. So all in all, though, an amazing mission. Um, you know, I thought at first that having the, the Tesla be the ballast in the rocket was kind of a weird um, – gimmick but i think it was really inspiring and just caught a lot of attention and i think that's going to be you know the modern era apollo moon landings for kids to say boy that's cool i want to get into engineering i think it's going to attract a lot of kids into the sciences and i think that's well worth uh, elon musk sacrificing his personal tesla yeah I, i i agree i think that the whole tesla stunt could not have gone any better because people were enthused about it. People were talking about it. The images were beautiful uh, of it, you know, and surreal at the same time. Um, and uh, I, I think it's going to be an iconic image. I, I guarantee you on New Year's Eve this year, when they show the year in review, you're going to see that Tesla with. Absolutely. Know, it's, it was amazing. And then when I first, you know, after the launch and that was all done and, I looked at the, you know, Musk uh, posted it to Twitter. Here's the live feed from the camera that's, you know, on an arm outside the car. And I looked at it and I said, oh, you know, okay, black background. And there's the car. And that's, you know, only so interesting. And then I started to see a shape form on the, on the door, you know, because the polish on the car was so, so perfect. And I noticed that it's, it was the earth. And you could see the reflection. And I watched the earth's reflection move across the door. I was like, okay, that is just super cool. Yeah, it was it was an amazing, amazing video to watch. And like you, I know you mentioned it at the time. You just sort of sit there and you watch that video feed for a while, kind of mesmerized by what you're looking at. 
Uh, it was pretty impressive that they that they thought ahead to have all those angles in place because there were multiple cam camera angles that were shooting from the car. Um, it was just a really a really good yeah absolutely it was a stunt. There's no way around saying that it wasn't that, but it was incredibly successful and got a lot of people uh, a lot of people talking about it and a lot of people's attention in a very positive way. Um, I was actually not expecting the two boosters to land so close to one another when they did. When the camera switched to the you know their fi the final stage of their descent, and you could see that they were both in view at the same time and coming down simultaneously like that, that is what just blew me away. The fact that they were that close to one another, that they were coming down so simultaneously, um, that really impressed the heck out of me. Just the engineering of that was just amazing. The, the programming and that worked so perfectly. It really shows that they're really coming along. Um, but I want to back up a little bit to why the Tesla? Why not put something else in there? Well, when you're first launching a rocket, you're first testing it out, usually what they put in there is a big block of concrete because they want something heavy in there. They want something that they have to balance and prove that they can send up a heavy payload. That's the whole idea behind the Falcon Heavy is that it can lift heavy things and get them way out beyond Earth orbit. And that's what they did. But why a block of concrete? I mean, that's downright bizarre. It's I think it's even more bizarre than doing something that's inspiring like the Tesla. And that's why I really changed my mind about this being a gimmick. So they had to mount that thing. They had to figure out how to do it. They had to kind of put it at an angle to get the weight distribution right and all this other stuff. And they proved that they could really do it and keep the thing perfectly aligned and on track. And I, I just think it was an amazing feat of engineering, the whole thing from beginning to end. Yep, I agree. It gives me hope. I did see somebody, somebody post, uh, to, you know, comment, uh, one of my friends posting on Facebook about how amazing it was, saying, well, couldn't they have done something useful? Like, say, gotten rid of some nuclear waste into space. But, <laughs> okay, so your idea was to strap a bunch of nuclear waste on top of an untested rocket in the middle of Florida. That had a 50-50 chance of exploding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, there's a reason they don't put nuclear waste on tested rockets that have a 99% chance of getting into orbit. They're not putting one on a 50% on chance of getting into orbit rocket. So. And they really engineer the hell out of the um, – a lot of the spacecraft have what's called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, and that's a plutonium-powered – power generator, like Voyager has those, and it, it, that's why it can still work billions of miles away. And those are engineered so that if the rocket blows up, they stay intact. And they actually had one on a rocket that exploded. And, you know, the chunks of the rocket fell into the Atlantic, and they actually went and got it, cleaned it up, and used it on another spacecraft. <laughs> Great. So, so they've got uh, a few more launches for the Falcon Heavy scheduled for this year. Do you know about those? I do not. Ah, so I, they're planning on the next one's going to carry a bunch of commercial satellites, um, or maybe some government ones too. Just you know, they can because on these big rockets, they they don't just launch one satellite. Usually, there's a bunch in there. Um, so they've got that. They're hoping to do that in a couple months, and then perhaps another one later in the year. And though it's unlikely, you know. SpaceX doesn't always keep its schedule. <laughs> they are hoping to launch the first uh, Dragon capsule at the very end of the year is the current schedule. So, and, and from what I read, it's supposed to be launched with people on it, which would be a huge, another huge milestone. It's interesting, though. The, the Dragon capsule, at least for the um, uh, space station, was, as I understand it, going on a regular Falcon, not a Falcon Heavy. It didn't need the Heavy to well, get may, up there. That, that might be true. That actually, uh, yeah, that it may be just on a regular Falcon. What yeah. I find interesting are the, uh, the discussion about the Falcon Super Heavy, where <laughs> they're, they're planning on strapping another two uh, of the Falcons on there. So instead of 27 of the uh, um, engines on there, it'll have, you know, whatever that math works out to be, 45, I think. Um, it was just just incredible. That's a lot of G's. And that's not the BFR. 
the big the, um, Falcon rocket. Yeah, that is the BFR. Oh, okay. Is. Yeah. Wow. Impressive. I'm glad somebody's doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because today I heard that um, NASA or the current administration or whomever is considering or even planning on handing over the ISS, the space station, to um, uh, private care, to, to actually having it um, become a commercial venture rather than government funded. Yes, uh... And, you know, I have decidedly mixed feelings on that. Um, on one hand, if it turns out to be a private operation in the, uh, the, 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 uh, the vein of, you know, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, there's actually some interesting things that could happen, perhaps even more than what, happening, what would happen if it continued to be government run. On the other hand, you know, the government's kind of sort of not wanting to play in this space anymore, quite literally. And uh, I think it might be, may, if, if not the, actually the correct solution, it might be the correct solution, but even if it isn't, it might be the most practical. Huh. Yeah, I had mixed feelings when I heard that they were going to cancel the shuttle. It's like, wait, what? And they said, well, we want to turn over the launch business to commercial interests. And I was like, which one? There aren't anybody, <laughs> there isn't anybody ready to do it. Right. And look what happened. Not it's, only did Musk do it, but Bezos has done it. So, it, you know, it's in the market too. So, yeah. And it, they're just doing a tremendous job at much cheaper prices than the government cheaper, ever did. But it's also not keeping up to the original schedule. Like as, as Gary mentioned earlier, you know, SpaceX, Musk in general, they've got this kind of reputation for setting incredibly aggressive dates that they don't meet. And I think that the original plan, when they were talking about uh, switching the um, uh, passenger ferrying to commercial flights instead of the space shuttle, I'm sure that in their mind, they had it happening a lot sooner than it's actually going to turn out to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, oh, I forgot to turn off the radios. Um, so there's one other thing that I want to talk about before we leave this topic, and that is Smarter Every Day, which is a really neat um, YouTube series, did a special on the Falcon Heavy launch with the sound of it. And he um, had this photographer take up some really high-end sound equipment that's theoretically 3D sound equipment. So you really want to wear your best headphones while you uh, listen to this and watch this. And it's amazing to watch. I don't know if either one of you uh, saw that one. So that's funny because I went, as you were saying, I have one more thing. I was about to jump in with one more thing, but it turned out to be the exact same one more thing. <laughs> I, I listened to that this afternoon. I mean, you watched it, of course, and it's interesting. And yeah, you know, the cameras are neat and so forth. But uh, the quality of the sound, the sound of that is very impressive, as is the delay. Like you were talking about earlier, the delay between the time the rocket actually takes off and the time you actually hear it from where they're stationed is also very impressive. And it's still pretty darned loud once it gets there. What I did find myself doing was fast forwarding through a lot of it to, uh, to the actual launch, the actual video that I was looking at. I don't know if it's the same one you saw, but it's like 15 or 20 minutes long and they spend like the first half of it just getting up to their, their observation point. Um, and that may or may not be interesting. I don't know, but that's not the, what I came for. I fast forwarded to the launch. That was well, the one I'll put in the show notes, I'll put a link to it, is nine minutes and 15 seconds. I think they cut out. A, they had a little bit of going up to the, the roof okay. of the vehicle assembly building. And, uh, but I think they probably cut a lot of that out. So it was really very interesting and kept my attention the whole time. Yep. Yep. It was very cool. Cool. So. So, Leo, um, we were talking earlier about Google demanding sites be secure. And I think that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, thing to talk about because it's, it affects both websites and the users. It's an interesting scenario. I think everybody's pretty much familiar with the difference between HTTP and HTTPS. But in a nutshell, when you connect to a website using HTTP, the information that is transmitted across the wire is not encrypted, which means that anybody who happens to be in between, like say your ISP or perhaps your government, can actually see what information is being transmitted. 
HTTPS solves that. It's actually end-to-end encryption between your browser, Chrome, Firefox, Internet Explorer, that kind of thing, or and uh, the website that you're visiting. We've long uh, said that if you're doing something sensitive, like, say, online banking, you want to make absolutely certain that you're doing so over an HTTPS connection. It uh, turns out that about uh, 14 years ago, uh, Google started to make HTTPS available for email because when you think about it, you're transmitting back and forth a lot of information uh, in email that you don't want just anybody to be able to see. So HTTPS protects you there too. About two years ago, Google made the announcement that in the interest of just general privacy, they were going to have the security state, whether or not your site is HTTPS or not, become become one of their ranking factors when the search results. So what that means is if everything else were actually absolutely equal, two sites that differed only in HTTP versus HTTPS, well, the HTTPS site would get ranked higher. It would show up sooner in the search results. Which, of course, as website owners, you know, we're all interested in making sure we, we get found and uh, doing everything that is appropriate to, uh, to, to make Google like us or rank us more highly is something that we do. It's one of the reasons, for example, that about two years ago, Ask Leo became HTTPS. The interesting, the privacy ramification there, of course, is that prior to that, and I'll, I, again, I'll use Ask Leo as, as my example, prior to that, you could browse Ask Leo and you could read the answers or you could even submit a question. You wouldn't necessarily think of that as being sensitive information. So it wasn't really that big a deal that you might be sending it over an unencrypted connection. But now that it is an encrypted connection, that means that nobody is going to be able to monitor what kinds of questions you're asking, what kinds of topics you're interested in. They'll know that you visited askleo.com, but they won't be able to see what we were, what I was showing you and what you were asking me. So Google continues to um, uh, promote HTTPS, encrypted connections, as being very important. Like I said, they've, they've already acknowledged and made it part of their search engine ranking. Many web browsers today will if you are about to submit something that could be sensitive information, like say you're about to submit your name and address to an online shopping site, they will warn you if the connection you're about to send it on isn't encrypted, which is a good thing because again, that's stuff you wanna keep private in between you and the, the target server. The news that came out recently is that in Google Chrome, apparently in a couple of months, they're going to do- July, I think. They're going to do something, and I don't know exactly what the something is that will, well, that the headlines are all saying that they're going to say your HTTP sites are not secure. In other words, unless the site is actually HTTPS, Google Chrome is going to warn you, even if it's just a read-only site, even if it's just a news site, even if it's just a, a site with information that you're not actually transmitting any, any information to. On one hand, I'm cool with that. I think it's great. I think that HTTPS uh, makes a lot of sense. Years ago, there were technical reasons for not necessarily implementing it across the board. Um, Those technical reasons have pretty much all fallen by the wayside as technology has improved. Um, But I'm really concerned about what I'll call the average consumer being frightened by warnings that at a very pragmatic level, don't really impact them. The fact that you visit a site like Ask Leo or This Is True or MacMost or the new, you know, your local newspaper or whatever, the fact that they might not be encrypted connections pragmatically doesn't matter. And Google's going to make it matter. Uh, we just don't know how. So I don't know if either of you have heard any of the details as to exactly what they're going to do when the site is not HTTPS. But it's an interesting move, and like I said, it's, it's the next logical step, I suppose, in a trend that's been going on for well over a decade now. 
Right, and yeah, this is something I've been following too. I made MacMOS secure last year, even though, as you said, there's really nothing, no reason for it to be secure. It's just you're just reading information off of there. Um, but you know, I I, I don't want to displease the uh, Google, the Google you know, gods. Yeah, that, and and not have it be so. So I was kind of forced to do it, um, and now they're forcing me to do it for the rest of my sites, which I'm kind of resentful of. But at the same time. Part of me is like, no, there's actually a decent reason for it, I guess. Um, what I found interesting is, is a, a, a one web host that uh, I know at least two of us use, uh, Liquid Web, um, has decided uh, to, uh, on their standard service, to basically give you your certificates and set it up so that your site's secure, um, which makes the whole process a lot easier. And this reminds me of a lot of things that have happened in the past. You know, back 20 years ago, if you were to, you know, uh, get a, a web service and put your site there, there was almost no security on it. Um, and it was like up to you. You know, if you don't want to have security on your site, do whatever you want. Um, and then, of course, these services started realizing that, that it, it impacts them. If somebody were to take over your site or do nasty things with your site or use it to break into their servers and stuff, it, it was a big impact on them. So they, they started giving you the security and providing it as part of their service. And even a lot of uh, sites now, or, you know, uh, services now will insist that you have a certain level of security, you know, strong passwords, two-factor authentication, that kind of thing, because um, it, it makes their entire service stronger. And it's almost like the same kind of thing now. It's a big pain to make your site secure, you know, using HTTPS. But at least one and probably several web hosts out there are saying, well, if everybody's going to be doing it, we're going to just make a part of our package and you, you don't have to worry about it. Matter of fact, even though it was still a pain to convert, I converted one of my sites this week. Um, if I were to start a new site from scratch today, I realized it wouldn't be any, I wouldn't have to do anything different. Like, cause it would from day one be secure. They'd have the certificate on it. So, so at least, at least with Google doing this, maybe it'll just become something where it is no big deal for either the hosts, you know, or the, uh, or the people going to a site. Like I said, I think the real, the part that concerns me the most is um, how is Google in the form of Google Chrome and presumably the other browsers will follow suit. How are they going to, what are they going to say when somebody tries to visit a site that is an HTTP? How big a warning is it going to be? Is it going to freak people out? Um, because I, I do think that it does stand a chance of freaking some people out. I, I mean, it just will. And they're not going to, um, they're going to think that things are really a lot worse off than they are. Yep. It's funny. I was thinking about, you know, my site specifically, and I know that, that yours falls into the same category, Gary, that people ask us questions. And if you think about it, you can infer a lot about a person by the questions they ask. So there's actually a certain amount of sense in uh, sites like ours where people are providing that kind of information uh, to encrypting the connections to, you know, one level of, of keeping it out of, out of snoopers hands. It's not like it's a common problem. It's not like it's something I expect, you know, any, anything but an incredibly tiny fraction of my visitors to, to really ever be concerned about. But there are scenarios where you can make the argument. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, you know, with there is that little thing where people are submitting questions. Um, and even their email address is included in case I want to email them back. Um, and, uh, you know, so it is good to have that secured. Now, I have other sites like my, the one site that comes to mind, my biggest site that gets the most traffic, even more than MacMost, is a, a site that has solitaire games on it. <laughs> and it's a... Um, uh, it's been my most popular site for years now. And there is absolutely no information going the other way. There's your, there's no form to fill out, nothing to submit. There's no, even the contact form, it just takes you to another, you know, my corporate site for a contact form. There's no contact form on the site. Um, so it really is uh, basically completely cosmetic that I will be making that uh, HTTPS here sometime soon. Uh, it will, won't make anybody more secure or anything. 
Well, it'll make somebody slightly more secure. I mean, it'll be obvious that they went there to play solitaire. It just won't, I, nobody will be able to tell how they did. They, yeah, they won't be able to. <laughs> won't or be, which actually, game they played, yeah. You, st- you won't be able to tell how they did still anyway because it all take, it's all browser-based. So your, your score and how well you did doesn't actually go back to the server. Actually, it does tell you. It, it does report a win. So I have like, this game was won 15 times so far today kind of thing. But uh, so I guess there is that one bit of information, whether you're good at solitaire or not. <laughs> well, you know, even on a website where you're putting in a comment, like on a blog or something, you are putting usually a name in and your email address. And, you know, I can see people wanting that at least somewhat secure. And on my site, people are, and I guess all, all of our sites, people are subscribing to our email newsletters, things like that. And, you know, I, I went secure last year or maybe even uh, in 2016. And uh, I think it just adds another layer of protection where people aren't going to be harassed or get their email out there that they don't want other people to have necessarily. I do do believe it makes people feel a little bit more secure, at least those that notice it. But at a practical level, it doesn't, for your site, for my site, it doesn't really make someone that much more secure. I agree. Because let's face it, the only people that's really protecting you from are people that are eavesdropping in on the conversation on the wire or wireless as the case may be. Which again, for most of us is just, Nobody, nobody cares. Nobody really cares about right. our conversations. Um, and the people that it still does not protect us from are the people that have actual authority. Um, you know, we can still be forced to give up uh, the comments, the access logs that we may or may not have, uh, any information we have, um, if, at least in the United States, if somebody's able to come up with a court order that says we need to turn it over. Hey, I have a question for you, Leo. Hmm. Um, so the use of uh, a VPN, you know, a VPN service, say if you, you, know, you take your laptop to a coffee shop, you don't want to log on directly to the coffee shop's Wi-Fi. Right. Um, so you use a, a VPN to keep yourself secure. If in the future, all of the sites are HTTPS, mm-hmm. is the VPN actually adding any value? Yes. Um, admittedly, your data is getting double encrypted um, from between your machine and the VPN services server. But the big thing that it does is it hides, actually a properly configured VPN uh, will hide the DNS request. So with just HTTPS, people can see, you know, it can be seen that you went to askleo.com or that you went to macmost.com. That information is still leaking. But with a properly configured DNS, even that is hidden. That goes over the encrypted wire, so nobody listening in can even see that. But if the, but they, so that's the only advantage, and you know you have this choice. Say, like, you know, my, I almost never use my v, my VPN service unless I'm traveling. You know, I just don't use public Wi-Fi unless I'm traveling. And when I'm traveling, I have to use it. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, uh, you know, you know, I hate to use the I have nothing to hide excuse because you know they're. You know, you shouldn't have to worry about that. But when I log on to something, it, it, I'm, I'm going to go to Gmail, check some email, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go to my own website to check sure, make sure it's, you know, I, I, I'm responding to comments. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And if somebody were to go and say, oh, wow, look, Gary Rosenzweig was checking his email and going to his own website, really it's not, <laughs> you know, you, you don't need to actually even know anything to know that I'm doing that every day. Right, right. The other thing, VPNs, the other value that they add is they can often make it look like you're somewhere that you're not. So it's one way of bypassing geographical okay. restrictions. Okay. But, it, but again, it, that's not a common use scenario. No. It's, not, it's not the keep me safe in, at Starbucks scenario at all. No. Yeah. I agree. I'm like you. I mean, for the most part, especially around here, um, when I'm going to places that I normally go to, Starbucks, <laughs> I, don't, I don't bother with the VPN. Um, you know, I visit sites that are HTTPS, mm-hmm. so I know that the data is not going to be snooped by whomever's sitting in the corner trying to snoop the Wi-Fi. But um, the fact that I went to Gmail or that I went to askleo.com, no big deal. Now, there are still some sites that I have that I administer over a non-HTTPS connection. 
right? These are WordPress sites that haven't been converted to HTTPS. And yeah, if I'm going to administer one of those, then I want to make sure that I'm using the VPN mm. because it, otherwise it's sending passwords and login credentials in the clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. No doubt about it. So one thing I want to clarify, um, they can see you're going to ask Leo or MacMost or whatever. Mm-hmm. Can they see which page or pages you're looking at on that site? Nope. Nope. Yeah, just, nope. They it's, just get the DNS request. Yeah, it's the DNS lookup that, that actually can leak out. Yep. So the actual connection to say ask Leo, mm-hmm. um, they can't see that you're going to various pages there. They can't see which pages. Right. Exactly. Um, they can, I, uh, yeah, they can see how many requests are going across the wire, but they can't see um, what those requests are about. So they can't tell whether I'm you know, reading a page or putting, you know, submitting a question. They can see how big the results are that are coming back. So for example, they could see, um, you know, he just looked at a small page or he just looked at a big page. Or a graphic or whatever. Yeah. For all I know, um, they might be able to, um, and again, we're talking HTTPS here, not a VPN, just straight HTTPS. Um, They can see all the individual requests for individual elements on the page. So if I've got a graphic on a page, that's typically going to be a separate request which in my case is also going to be HTTPS, but it's going to be HTTPS to a different domain because it's running through a CDM. And um, again, if they're really interested, potentially, I suppose, they could fingerprint things like this combination of size and additional requests means that he probably went to look at this page. But they can't say, uh, tell which images you're downloading or which... Uh, files you're uploading, things Correct. like that. They yep. just they can just see that there is a bunch of data going back and forth right. of a certain size, but they but it's encrypted so that even if they record it, they can't see what the picture is or whatever. Exactly, but like I said, based on you know they see the the number of requests, the size of the responses, those kinds of things. It's conceivable that if if you were really interesting to somebody, they could actually go through the process of fingerprinting some of these sites to say. No, he probably looked at this page because looking at this page over HTTPS generates this characteristic of a response. Huh. It's interesting stuff, but yeah, that's yeah. why. And to go back to your question, Gary, that's also the kind of stuff that would also be hidden by a VPN. In other right. words, you know, the number of requests, the specific pages, um, you know, you'd see the number of requests going in HTTPS, but if you did HTTPS over your VPN, none of that would be visible. All you would see is packets going back and forth. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting stuff. Yep. 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 It is. Speaking of interesting trivia. <laughs> yeah. Is that for a segue, Gary? Yeah, it's good. Good. It's a good segue. We're getting better at that. Um, okay. So there's this game. Some of you probably have heard of uh, called uh, HQ Trivia, and it's it's an app actually. So you get it on your iPhone. I think it's Android too. Um, and it's a trivia game, but it's live and several times a day. And a, it's pretty impressive technology because it's a live video stream. A host comes on live and says a whole bunch of really bad jokes uh, and then asks you trivia questions. And the trivia questions, he says them, they appear on the screen, and you have to answer the trivia questions. You know, it's multiple choice. Um, and you can win real money. And the way it works is it starts with hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people playing. and the first question comes up, and if you get it wrong, you're out. You can still watch, but you're, you're not going to win anything. And then you keep going, and of course, you know, uh, the math behind it is, you know, if everybody's eliminated, as soon as you get the first one wrong, they can go to 10 or 11 questions, and there's very few people that actually will get to the winning round, and they just divide up like $2,000 or $2,500 or something. So you may, you may end up winning 20 bucks. Um, if you can answer all the questions right. And of course, they get harder as you go along, and the chances of you being able to answer that many trivia questions in a row correctly is very difficult. So, Can, can anyway. I call a friend? Well, okay, so <laughs> the way they prevent cheating is it's live and it's fast. It's 10 seconds. So oh, wow. I start saying, 
you know, here's the trivia question. He's, he asks it. It appears on the screen. It doesn't even appear on the screen until he's almost done saying the question. So he can't kind of read ahead. Um, and then the answers appear, and you've got just seconds to respond. So it's almost impossible to Google So you it. really have to know it. Yeah. And, you know, the one way that people kind of cheat but it's expected and they probably like it is people will gather around. You know, you have a bunch of people at work and you know, everybody gathers around because you know the time that the show is going to be and people will shout out the answers. And if you're good at sports and it's a sports question, you might know, but you know, they just, that's good for them, right? They love to have the fact that people are probably gathering around Absolutely. somebody's iPhone, you know? So it seems to be cheat proof, except that of course, you know, challenge accepted kind of thing. It's somebody's found a way to cheat. Um, they've combined screen reading uh, to read the question really quick and then to Google the answer um, very rapidly, probably using multiple, I'm guessing it's using multiple browsers or multiple computers even, um, and just quickly shoot out the answer based on search results so it's not a completely accurate, this is the definitive answer, but based on the question and a couple quick searches and the possible choices, they, I think it said they were 82% of the time that they were correct. Um, and this was a free website you would go to uh, that would just tell you the answers. So you could, by you know, the last second you had to answer, get see the answer on the screen, tap the answer on your phone, and get the answer right by cheating. So I found that fascinating that somebody had, you know, taken that challenge and actually found a way to kind of cheat. But even at 82%, it's not, most of the time, that's not going to get you to the end. Uh, what was fascinating to me is how they figured out that the cheating was working. They, they went in and saw the average numbers when people would get, um, get these wrong. You know, a certain percentage would drop off after every question. And you'd always end up with something like 80 people or 100 people at the end. But occasionally, you would end up with much higher numbers, like 6,000 people at the end. And they were able to look at how well the cheating algorithm did and judge that, that was when that happens, when there's like 6,000 people win, that's because the, this little cheating app was actually getting all of the answers correct. And they figured out that that's how many people are actually using it to cheat. So it wasn't like the site was up there and nobody was really using it. It was like, yeah, if, if their cheating app worked, then thousands of people were winning and getting, you know, 20 cents or something for their victory rather than 100 people winning and getting 20 bucks. So I thought that was fascinating. And the, they've, the site is down now, apparently, at least the last article I read but it promises something new will be coming up. And of course, the makers of this game promise that they're going to find a way to, to make it harder to cheat. Like maybe uh, a theory is, you know, having questions that are based on a picture rather than just text questions mm. uh, or having questions that Google doesn't handle well, like relationship-based questions rather than, you know, who is or what is, but, you know, what's the difference between or what's the distance between or what's the, you know, something where there's more logic to the, to the answer than actually a fact that you're revealing. So, and I'm sure that then the people who are trying to break it will try to come up with a way to, <laughs> to beat that as well. It's interesting. There are two sides to that. One is, you know, oh, darn them. They're trying to cheat those darn cheaters. Yeah. But on the other hand, they're innovating. They're doing some really interesting stuff that, sure, it's got applicability when you're cheating, but it might also be something that people might use for um, less nefarious purposes. For some reason, this all reminds me of Watson on Jeopardy some years yeah. ago. It's, you know, it's the exact same scenario, how quickly. It wasn't about whether the, the computer could come up with the answer. It was, could it understand the question, and how quickly could it find that answer? And obviously, Watson at that time did a really good job. Um, it seems like we're heading off in that that same direction, only it's all in your pocket. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, it is interesting, the whole idea of doing research this way is, you know, will some actual, like, AI research uh, come out of this, you know, of this idea of the challenge of trying to defeat a trivia game? Um, sure. Yeah. Reading from the screen even is, is yes. not trivial. Right. So, and, and, and having the challenge of saying, we need to have the answer in less than 10 seconds. Um, 
Whereas before, researchers may have not even put a time limit on it. What new thing will be discovered because they're trying to do it within a certain period of time? Right. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's uh, from the tech enthusiast standpoint, I find it to be the, the cheating to be just as fascinating as the game itself. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, I, I actually have another topic if we want to move on. Sure. From that. Um, so, so did you guys watch the, uh, any, uh, any of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics? I did not. No? I watched a little bit of it, yeah. Yeah. So they had this thing. At one point, they showed these drones flying in the sky with lights. And uh, I can't remember. I've seen so many videos now of these drones. From, this is from Intel uh, that I don't remember what they actually showed during the opening ceremonies, even though I did watch it. I remember they showed the Olympic rings up in the sky. But I don't remember if they showed like the skier and these other um, kind of animated, uh, you know, images up there. But they did, you know, you can see them online. You can, you know, Google, you know, the Intel Olympic drones. I'm sure it comes right up with the video. And uh, so it's fascinating. So they had, uh, it was like 1,200 drones. And they, all they had on them was lights. So they weren't these heavy drones that have cameras in them with big batteries for the cameras and all that. These are just lightweight drones that just glow. And they're all programmed to basically fly in these patterns and not just show like kind of a, you know, these dots up in the sky to form images like a skier or a snowboarder or something, but also to animate. So as they move around, uh, they can make it look like the skier is actually skiing. Um, and, and of course the lights can go on and off. And I, I don't know if they could, th- this one can change colors. There was actually something similar during the halftime show at the Super Bowl. There was a 300 drone array that did something like that. So not quite as big, but still showed off that technology. And it's really impressive if you watch the video because you see the stadium and then you see these drones overhead forming this massive image. Um, and it must have been really impressive. So my theory is that, that this is better than fireworks. Having these drones in the sky form these animated images with lights, colored lights, uh, and then synchronizing that to music is way more impressive fireworks, which quite frankly, I've never found fireworks that impressive. Kind of like old technology, just things exploding in the sky and they, they kind of try to form little patterns sometimes or do something to the music, but it never quite seems to work very well. Uh, in my experience, watching lots of fireworks over the course of my lifetime. And also it's pretty wasteful. I mean, you're exploding all these things in the sky, uh, creating a lot of waste. There's a fire, fire hazard. There's danger hazard to the people, you know, launching them. Um, and having a bunch of drones might be a safer and more interesting uh, kind of thing that you could do uh, in the sky for cool effects at you know special occasions. I can't say that I'd ever expect them to replace fireworks. There's just something visceral about things exploding that you're not going <laughs> to agree. You're not going to replace with a uh, uh, even the best demonstration. I was thinking about the, the the drones. Two things on them. One is I was so disappointed to find out that the um, the drone display that they showed during the opening ceremonies was in fact pre-recorded. Yeah. Um, I thought that they were going to go live. Um, but nonetheless, what they were doing was very impressive. So what's the next logical extension of this? So I don't think these changed colors, but I think they will uh, at some point. So because the, the, the Olympic rings that I saw, they were all white. Mm. And you know that if they were going to be able to do color, they were going to do the Olympic rings in their appropriate colors. But think about one. Think about having a red drone a green drone, and a blue drone, RGB. Mm-hmm. Then think about having, instead of, what is it, 1,200 of them? Think of having like 1080 across or 1080 up and down <laughs> by 1920 across. So all of a sudden, you've got your own flying TV screen. And I think that that, maybe not at that resolution, but that's going to happen. 
that's one that I predict will happen. I'm not sure they're going to have that many drones, um, not one drone per pixel, but they could, you know, take up a net of lights. And I don't think they're going to be one here is red, the other one's green. I think they're going to be able to change colors. Oh, definitely. I, I think so. I, like I said, I, I, that's the extreme case, right? 1080 by 1920 by, you know, three, three drones per pixel. That's the extreme case. But what's interesting about that extreme case is not that it may or may not be practical, but it's within the realm of possibility. Yeah. The more pragmatic approach is going to be something like, you know, 640 by 400 or no, six, yeah, 640 by 360 is the, um, the resolution. And then as you say, um, you know, one drone that can do, uh, you know, change colors, basically, uh, then you end up with a small portable screen. I don't think it'll be a mesh. I think that they'd actually would send up individual drones for that, just because you can, <laughs> you can make the screen bigger and smaller and make it, you know, work far away or not. It's just, it's just one of those things that I think is going to be interesting. Rather than having the drones dancing around, it wouldn't surprise me if they put up a static screen and just started showing movies. I don't know. I think you're thinking too small. I, I think the three-dimensionality of it <laughs> is, no, because it's like a screen, a flat screen up in the sky. You know, why limit yourself to that when you can have a 3D model come to life? True. You know? Yep. I mean, yep. If, if the idea maybe is to show a pre-existing video, you know, have like a massive drive-in movie where the entire city can sit and watch a movie. Um, and <laughs> like the, the flat screen is fine. But if the idea is maybe to advertise something, uh, you know, which would probably be the first use of this kind of thing, um, have a three-dimensional Coca-Cola can up in the sky rotating around. Actually, if first use is what drives some of this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I know where, where you're going, going. This, right? Yeah. <laughs> porn in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, most drones tend to have better lives in the twenty to thirty minute range, so it's it's more for a demo thing than you know a full length feature movie. But as you say, technology advances. Yeah, and there's, I mean, the, the thing that I'm walking away from this little discussion with, there's a lot of possibility here. I mean, I kind of thought of drones as an interesting toy. I know that they're doing some amazing photography. I mean, we have a mutual friend who does some really beautiful photography with his drone-based photography business. Um, you can now see drone-based um, video in many TV shows, movies, that kind of stuff. But as wonderful as that is, as cool as that is, it's clearly clearly just the tip of the drone iceberg and that's very very cool yeah we're still pretty early in the technology yep. yeah the only limitation i could think of right now is daylight is you know no matter how good you do uh, do uh, like a screen at night or a 3d model at night you just can't do it during the day it's not going to be visible well, challenge accepted yeah, really. <laughs> so no, that's when you put those explosives on the drones <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, some cool cool things definitely with these these arrays of drones, programmable arrays. It also makes me think of like the fountains. You know, when they have these these massive fountains that have all the different nozzles, and they do you know the dances like in front of the casinos in, yep. in, uh, in in Vegas. They use software, and I've actually worked a little bit with so this software to uh, to program them and and you know do all that. And I imagine it's a very similar type of software to program these drones to fly in patterns and turn their lights on and off uh, at the appropriate times. Yep. Cool yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. So, so what's not cool is, uh, is getting scammed. What? Uh, <laughs> well, I just saw this in the news this week and I just thought it was very interesting. This, this random couple in Acton, Massachusetts started getting packages from Amazon that they didn't order. You know, things like cheap plastic fans and phone chargers and stuff. And, you know, they called Amazon and said, what the heck, what is this? And Amazon said all they can tell them was that it was paid with a gift card and there's no traceable person that, that made the order. And they just keep getting more and more stuff. And... You know, that's mildly interesting by itself, but then the why is some quote-unquote experts say 
that this couple is probably being used to manipulate Amazon buyer reviews. So the anonymous sender is probably once there's an actual sale and then they can uh, say that they, they can post a review of probably their own product and say, oh, this is the greatest phone charger. It really works well. It's really cheap, whatever. And then you theoretically could even get the uh, you know verified purchase tag on that review, which adds credence to the review. But then you have to wonder, well, wouldn't Amazon then know who made the order? But but Gary, you had an interesting uh, term for this. You knew what yeah. this was called. Yeah, yeah. This is called brushing. And it's been going on for a while. It's just this term for this type of scam. And it's it's somewhat, I mean, victimless, you know, as, as far as scams are. There's a, It's a very minor type of identity theft in a way because you're using your address um, as a, you know, this fake person or whatever lives at this address and they're getting these things shipped there. So the person at the other end is getting free stuff. It may not be stuff you want or have any use for, but the stuff's arriving and of course you could keep the stuff. It's coming to your house. Um, but they, they're doing it to manipulate reviews. There's also a part of the, the whole scam has to do with how postage works in China. Uh, supposedly there's something to do with how the government subsidizes shipments to the United States that it's very cheap for somebody in China to ship something to the U.S. And I think the whole idea is that, you know, companies in China can, can ship their products. You know, I bought things before from Amazon that actually ship from China, little gadgets and devices and things. And, um, and so they subsidize it to, you know, help businesses in China uh, export things to the United States. Um, so these businesses they're, they're paying for their own product. So they're paying money, but the money's coming back to them since it's their product. So if they spend 20 bucks on something, they're getting most of that 20 bucks back. And then the shipping is pretty cheap. So all they need to do is ship a bunch of their product to a bunch of different addresses in the United States. It's a verified purchase. Then they could leave reviews. And it's not just the reviews, but also the sales themselves. You know, Amazon seeing that, you know, 20 of these things were ordered and now they show up higher on searches uh, when compared to something that only has five orders. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a very weird, bizarre scam. And then the frustrating thing is for people on the other end of it is there's nothing you can do. If, you're, if your address is now on one of these lists or something, you're just going to continue to get stuff. And, you know, you, you hope you have a, you know, good process of throwing things away in the trash or in the dumpster or whatever it is because you're getting tons of junk you don't need. Or if it's actually usable stuff, you can give it to people. But I just thought it was a a fascinating little thing that you knew that there had to be money involved. Yeah. Probably not just a practical joke because, you know, that gets boring after a while. So, yeah, what was the scam? And that was just an interesting little uh, uh, twist on things going on that you don't know about. And I think that if you're getting – a bunch of reviews for stuff that's really garbage that isn't good, then yeah, it'll probably attract more sales and people are going to be taken that way. So it did, it does pay off for the scammer in the end, as long as they don't get too many bad reviews saying, Oh, I, I bought this and whoever said this was good is wrong because of this and that. One and eventually showed, they'll be taken down. One of these showed up in the mailbox one day and it's a piece of crap. I didn't ask for it, but it's a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. You don't have an order for it. You can't review it because it's not your yeah. order. You can review anything, can't you? Well, but you want to be a verified. I don't know. Exactly. How that's, 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 that's the only difference that I can see is that you yeah. can go on there and claim that you have you know XYZ product and here's my experience with it and it'll show up as a review. But if they can track your purchase associated with your account when you leave a review, that's when you get that Amazon verified um, purchase that um, presumably not only gives your review more credibility to people reading reviews, but I would assume it has an impact on the algorithm on which reviews it's going to show you. It's got to. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I've seen, I mean, I did a, uh, a Mac most episode a while ago on a, you know, some knockoff Apple earbuds that are, uh, or ear pods, the, the latest ones 
that were just horrible. And it was just a, uh, it was a simple uh, purchase. You know, my daughter's ear, uh, earphones had uh, broke. So she wanted to order a new pair, but she doesn't have you know her own credit card or anything like that. So she just sent a link. Here's here here's some replacement ones. Um, my wife ordered them without looking at the Amazon page. She just clicked on it and ordered. And of course, my daughter didn't know enough to like read the reviews. She just searched for official Apple, you know, uh, earphones. And oh, and here they are, really cheap. Yeah. And so then, as soon as they I mean, here's the funny thing, they came and they look almost identical. But she plugged them in immediately and said, something's wrong with these. These sound really bad. And I was like, no, I'm sure you're just, you know, new, you know, new ones and you're just not used to how, you know, these sound. And I listened to them and I was like, these do sound really bad. And we looked at them and they looked okay. And I said, let me see the order. And then I tracked it and I looked and there was like an average of two stars on the reviews. And you look through the reviews and there's just person after person saying, these are fakes. These are fakes. Even though they say in the description, official. Official Apple, from Apple, all this stuff. And then I started to examine them closely, and I could see slight differences in how they were put together from real ones. Um, but how do they even you know, get people, the first people to buy them? If you look through the reviews, there were a whole bunch of verified reviews early on when the product first hit the market of five stars, people saying these are the real thing, they're really from Apple, and they work and sound great. Interesting. And yeah, they were, they were either... This thing, they were, you know, brushing, you know, these fake reviews mm-hmm. uh, from that. Or the only other thing I could think of was you could scan the whole system by buying a bunch of official Apple earpods, sending out the first 1,000 as the real thing, getting those good reviews, and then you send the next 100,000 are just junk. Right. So a lot of ways to scam, scam things. Yeah, and it's, that's on Amazon as far as I'm concerned if it says yeah. genuine Apple and they're yeah, not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and this thing had uh, hundreds of reviews of people saying these are not genuine Apple. They sound horrible. Um, it's not the real thing. And so why had at some point with so many bad reviews, uh, Amazon noticed that? It's interesting. I, you know, I, I wonder that sometimes too, but I wonder if it's simply an order of magnitude thing in that, Amazon has so many products that um, this kind of stuff could easily below the, be below the threshold where they would notice. Mm-hmm. As many as bad reviews as there might be, um, they may not, um, you know, they could probably devote hundreds of people whose full-time job it is is to deal with this kind of stuff and still not be able to catch up. Yeah, I suppose. I, I, I would think if there's a threshold, this would be above the threshold considering how many people must look for replacements and the fact that they don't sell official apple ones so (laughs) i'm sure and i'm sure that the cost impacts their decision on what to pay attention to as well maybe it's cheap but it it was the number one search result at the time if you were looking for official apple ear pods Mm -hmm. um it was at the top so i don't know i don't know i guess there could be a threshold and this was just below it but uh yeah, not that they couldn't do a better job. I agree yeah. totally, but um, I could also, you know, see the flip side where this is a massive problem, and hopefully they will come up with some kind of an intelligent solution. But- well, and another way they could do a good threshold is for returns. Um, you know, not don't go by the reviews, but if they start getting massive returns, um, start you know maybe above say five percent are returned, then possibly. Yeah, look into things, it, if nothing else. On <laughs> things like inexpensive earbuds, who's going to take? You know, who's yeah. going to take the people time and the expense, the people, hassle to return them? People, there are there are people like me that won't return them right. <laughs> because it's like not it's too much of a hassle. Right. Instead, I did a video using them and showing how they were fakes. So uh, you turned so it I, into content. I, got, I, like I it. turned it into content. But <laughs> there are, there are people that will return anything, no matter how inexpensive, no, no matter how much time it's going to take them to do it. That I think it could put it above a. A certain threshold, and the thing is, they probably don't actually have to return them. I mean, I once I, I once received a broken product from Amazon that was a very heavy product. It was a like a, a, a small, fairly inexpensive home appliance, and I was like, boy, the the shipping cost on this alone to send it back is going to be impossible. And um, and the response from Amazon was, we're going to refund you the money 
if the company that shipped it to you wants it back, they will contact you. Otherwise, you could do what you want with it after three weeks. And I never heard back from the company. <laughs> and I was able to actually trade it to somebody who could use it um, later on. So my feeling is with things like that, Amazon may actually say, you know what, don't return it. Here's your money back. And then just log it as a return and not care. So, anyway. so I think the takeaway is read the reviews before you buy. Always, yeah, always. Still take them with a grain of salt. Grain of salt, but look yep. for red flags like hundreds of reviews saying it's fake or it doesn't work. Yeah, if <laughs> I see three five-star reviews, I assume it's the person selling it and his mom and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, before I think we've covered the hour, but before we go, uh, I know I have at least one thing, one little personal project I want to talk about. But first, do you guys have any? Uh, have well, I, I finished today uh, rebuilding one of my sites to not only make it secure to loop back to the uh, to the HTTPS discussion, but to put it on a different platform to make it easier to publish. So uh, as my honorary unsubscribe.com site, which is an interesting obit of uh, somebody who died in the recently to kind of balance my newsletter a little bit. And this week's honoree is John Perry, John Perry Barlow, who was one of the co-founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm. I spent yesterday helping someone move <laughs> from one platform to another. Um, yeah, that was, it was Thank good. Thank you very see, much. Yeah, it was good to see that site on, on for, for the techies who are listening. Uh, we basically moved from a custom solution to WordPress and it's, it's a way, way better, more manageable site under uh, WordPress than the custom solution, which again, you know, I'm the guy that wrote the, the custom solution. So I get to say how bad it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, as for me, last week I mentioned the uh, the backing up with Windows 10 book. That's actually been doing really well. I've been watching a lot of people pick it up. If you haven't, the sale ends, I think, on Valentine's Day. So uh, have a have a quick peek out there. Um, and other than that, you know, I think both of you guys know that we lost one of our corgis about three months ago mm. to cancer. Um and if the stars align, we may end up with a new dog tomorrow. Oh, wow. Exciting. She's like two or three years old um, and uh, looking forward to that. It's going to, the house has been just a little bit more quiet with only two dogs instead of three. So <laughs> it'll be, it'll be fun. Uh, excellent. What did you have, Gary? Oh, so for me, yeah, I, uh, as a lot of people who follow me know, I launched a new game uh, late last week. Um, so it's, this is an iOS app for iPhone and iPad called Island Golf. And uh, you could find it by, actually, I think now at this point, if you search for Island Golf in the App Store, it comes right up. But clevermedia.com has got all my games listed, and it's at the top. And it's just it's a casual little fun golf game where you just kind of tap and drag and shoot the golf ball. And it takes place on little tropical islands out in the middle of the ocean. It takes about five minutes to play around a round of golf, and there's a new golf course every day. And right now, it's completely free, completely ad-free, completely in-app purchase-free. There's like really no downside to the app right now. Eventually, I'm going to have to figure out how to monetize it, but I decided that I just wanted to launch this game as kind of a pure free play game and uh, figure that business stuff out later after I got uh, plenty of people playing it. So... Give it a try. And, and that's one of, the, one of the things I like about your games, Gary, is you do all the programming yourself, and I think that's really yeah. neat. Yep, I'm a, I'm a coder. I have a computer science degree, and uh, after I got my computer science degree, uh, before game developer was even a career, <laughs> I decided, you know, I really just would love to just use my my coding skills just to make games. So I started doing that. I've been doing that uh, ever since, and you know, it's great now that we have platforms like a, a mobile app stores where I can actually make a game and publish it myself. Now, to be clear, Gary, your games are, are Apple platforms only, correct? Uh, I do have a few of my more popular games are Android as well. Oh, really? Okay, so, cool. But this one is yeah, not. The new one is not. This one's not yet. No, typically, I do develop in a, in a cross-platform environment, but typically I deploy first uh, sure. on, on the uh, Apple platforms. And then if it, uh, if it works out, like it has, say, for you know my Mahjong Tiles game or some of my uh, Card Solitaire games, 
uh, then I, I uh, create Android versions of them. And I, I list those at the website too. Cool. I'm going to have to go look at that because, yeah. you know, I'm an Android guy. I don't have an iPhone. So, but I've, you know, you've been dangling this, this game in front of us for the last week and uh, <laughs> I felt yeah. left out, but I'll go check out some of the others. Yeah, cool. Well, good stuff. I think that's a good place to wrap. Yeah. So the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh11. We're also on Twitter at the teh podcast. And you can find us also at facebook.com slash the teh podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. See you guys. Bye. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.